Welcome to Obsessed with Design, a show about what makes designers tick. My name's Josh Miles. I'm a designer, principal, and brand strategist at Miles Herndon, a branding agency in beautiful downtown Indianapolis. Today on Obsessed with Design, I have my second conversation with Prescott Perez Fox. Prescott is an independent graphic designer and brand strategist himself in New York, and you may know him as the host of The Busy Creator, another design-oriented podcast. And if you are not listening to The Busy Creator, be sure and check that out. You might even find a handful of guests that overlap, including an interview where Prescott interviews me. So this is going full circle. If you have listened to a lot of our shows, this one goes a little bit off the rails. We go into some fun spots and quickly get into some pretty geeky stuff, which was a lot of fun catching up with Prescott. So please enjoy this conversation with Prescott Perez Fox. All right, guys, I am excited to welcome back the one and only Prescott Perez Fox, who is not only the host of the other popular design podcast, The Busy Creator, but he's also an independent graphic designer and brand consultant in New York. So Prescott, welcome back to Obsessed with Design. Oh, thank you, Josh. It's great to be back. There's so much internet podcast design love going on. And um, I should tell folks, like, I listened to you and I already today for like an hour and a half across two different conversations. And so I'm, I'm kind of sick of both of us already, but <laughs> but I'm, I'm really glad we could reconnect. And thank you for inviting me back. <laughs> so we were, um, I think it was just some interaction on Twitter when you were like, well, well, heck, I'd like to be back on the show. And it's like, all right, so here's, here's the rule. If we bring you back on the show, we gotta, we gotta definitely nerd out on something. So we're going to, the, Folks, this is uncharted territory, and this is not really pre-planned. So, the only thing that Prescott and I talked about at the top of the show, which is which is ironic because it's pretty much that time of year as we're recording today, we're gonna go live with this episode in early 2017. But as we sit, it's a few weeks before Christmas, and and you were recounting that it was like the same time of year that we talked the last time. Is that right? Yeah, definitely. And I had just moved back to Brooklyn, and so now I, I guess I've just passed a year in that same apartment and discovered some things that you can only discover from living in a place for a year, of course. And, um, yeah, I mean, we, you know, the beginning part of my previous appearance, uh, frankly, it was like a bit of therapy and I was just ranting and I was just saying like all this crazy stuff that happened to me and you know (laughs) what I'm anticipating for my career and yada, yada. And then of course that was before 2016 unfolded on top of us. And now we're all thinking about things a little differently, right? Because we still have those same concerns. Mm -hmm. And I think all of us still have the aspirations and the goals and the projects we want to work on. But now there's like a weird, you know, kind of sense of finality, if if that's a word where it's like, yeah, man, I want to, I want to design a a line of, uh, you know, vegetable juices and also not be killed. Like, you know what I'm saying? There's, (laughs) there's that, (laughs) that weird parenthetical that we have to put on things now. And I mean, that's even in a short amount of weeks, like I think that's really changed things. I'm talking, of course, about the latest politics in the U.S., but also just the headlines in aggregate that we've seen this year have just been bananas. Right. And uh, I mean, we've had a lot of people dying. We've had very odd scientific breakthroughs. And, you know, actually, I read good news today that the panda is no longer endangered. Um, so a little oh, bit of good well, news. Goodness, at least one yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. 
I guess, but I mean, you know, whatever you do, don't look up numbers for polar bears because that will just make you depressed. <laughs> well, as long as we're going to go down the uh, random biological factoids, uh, my favorite recent one was the uh, little piece of dinosaur tail that they found in amber that had feathers on it. Like that was just probably the most exciting thing that my kids and I have discussed in the last couple of weeks. Yeah. Yeah, man. But can we talk about and this is kind of a revived obsession and it's star Wars and the, well, I'm obsessed with the movies in general. Right. And I go, I, I go pretty much once a week, sometimes twice a week to the movies and I have movie pass, which is like Netflix for the cinema. So you pay a monthly membership mm. and you can go once a day to an actual movie. And that's really useful in New York because we have a lot of art house and independent films. There's a lot of cinemas within walking distance and some of them are kind of quirky. You know, you can get dinner served and things like that. Um, so it's good to have in the city and especially if you like movies and you really want to see them all. And um, so I've been seeing a lot and of course, like overanalyzing every last drop of them. But then of course, I've been obsessing about Star Wars because we're about to see Rogue One later this week as we record this. Mm -hmm. And I've, I've been actually going back and like reading some of the novel or listening to them on audiobook, in fact, and, and kind of pondering about Star Wars and looking at like fan art on Pinterest because there's so much of it and it's so good. Oh, man. It's like, it is ridiculous. Like anyone who has a moment, just look at like Star Wars art, comic book art, ridiculous paintings. It, it's just amazing. There's such fruitful territory there for creativity. There's a guy that I follow on, uh, on Instagram. I think his handle is Venomous or something, V-E-N-A-M-I-S, who just does some ridiculous uh, Jedi-related stuff and Star Wars stuff, just gorgeous work. Yeah, there's so much of it that is just envy inducing and not just star wars related but that has been a latest obsession of mine and i was telling a guy here in the office who because i saw him actually reading the last command which is um which is book three in the admiral thrawn trilogy and <laughs> just to push up my nerd glasses real quick that, <laughs> and i i saw him reading it like he, he was carrying the book on the elevator and then i was like oh you know this is one of those secret society things where it's like oh my god you're a star wars guy and then next thing you know we're talking about it and i was telling him about I got a, I, I mean, it's like underground edit of the prequel movies. And the, like this started, I mean, you know, almost 10, uh, 15 years ago already where this guy called the Phantom Editor produced a cut of that film, The Phantom Menace, and he re-edited it so that it flows better and it's shorter and he cut out mm. extraneous dialogue and just generally made the film better by most standards by shortening it and by like occasionally taking deleted scenes and putting them in and, you know, he really edited it. And then people have done similar projects with all the movies. And I got this one that is, it's ridiculous. Like it's episode one, uh, but he, he edited it. And then he, like I said, did some special effects, put things back in, did things with music, but then there's also a DVD commentary track. So the whole time that he's telling you what he did, he's kind of roasting the movie and it's so funny. This ridiculous. <laughs> you know, he's sitting there. He's just like, this is a horrible scene. Why? I just don't get it. Cut, cut. Two minutes gone. Like he, I mean, and by the, I think he was drinking, but by the end of it, <laughs> he's like, he's not even telling you about his project. He's just making fun of this movie. Um, so that was, I mean, that's a great kind of a, that's a great project to do, or that's a great activity to do on May the 4th 
if you have some nerdy Star Wars friends. And bite them <laughs> over. Watch a, <laughs> a bootleg re-edit of The Phantom Menace with commentary and just laugh your ass off. And so what's that one called? Or His name is The Phantom Editor. Is that how people would track it down? Uh, no, I think that was Late Writer. L number eight wrtr something like that like late writer and but yes the phantom edit and the phantom editor are also characters in this in this little story here <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome yeah i had maintained after watching the episode one for the first time that if they had just cut out all of the um spacecrafts taking off and landing from the scenes i think it would have taken <laughs> 45 minutes out of the film just by itself oh man well let me tell you, if you really want to go down a rabbit hole, and especially if you like film and you like character development and stories and all this type of thing, you should go on YouTube and look at uh, if the prequels were good. Or maybe it's what if the prequels were good. And this is a series that the, I don't even know who the people are that made this. You know, some geeks like me. And this guy basically gets up in front of the camera and he says, what if the prequels were good? No, like really good. And then he explains in three sort of 20-minute videos what the plot would be for these three movies that were actually done well. And he talks about character arc and development and who needs to have conflict and who needs to have conflict in one movie that returns in the third one. Like, you know what I'm saying? And uh, and then, of course, it's done with storyboards. So there's these gorgeous mm. illustrations to look at as well. And I'm like, this is amazing to think about rewriting, you know, obviously these very successful movies. But to think about uh, especially a prequel where you have a particular end point, which is an interesting way to have a story, right? Because usually it's like you have the starting point. It's like, OK, these two guys move in next door to each other and go. Where here's the opposite. It's like, you know where it ends up. So how are you going to get there? And it's really interesting the way that he put that together. So that actually I recommend as a, a very interesting, you know, creative project, right? Um, what if the prequels were good? And that's just a really fun thing to do as well. Yeah, that's a really great point. I mean, just from to um, maybe unpack that a little bit further, if we take that out of the this Star Wars, you know, uh, universe and just look at future problems as, OK, we know where we ended up here, you know how do we get here and how do we arrive there? We know, and maybe to put that in a, in a design or branding context, like we know that these things aren't going to change. So how do we tell the backstory or the mission or the vision that supports where we wound up with this thing? I think that's really interesting. Yeah. And that's almost like, and I guess we're you know getting back to career related stuff uh, that I know some agencies do a pre-mortem, which is like a post-mortem, but it happens in the beginning. And you talk about, um, potentially when the project ends, what do we want to be gathered around and saying, you know, and, and it's an interesting way to frame it. It's a little bit hippy dippy ish, right? It's one of these, these new age type of European things. I don't know, but <laughs> <laughs> the, I mean, think about it. That could only be a 10 minute conversation, but you say, Hey, so-and-so wants us to do this huge colossal web design project. There's so many ways it could go wrong. What do we want to think about right from the top. And, and what do we want to say? Like, Hey, I can't believe they figured out a way to do blank, blank and blank, you know, that type of thing. Yeah. So it's an interesting thought exercise to do a, a pre-mortem. Um, but actually I wanted to ask you, I was listening to your appearance on my show in 2014, August, 2014, which was almost like another era ago because right. obviously it was, a, you know, it was pre-Trump and that, but it was also 
before Miles Herndon, and it was just Miles' design. And you you mentioned on that show that you had nine people, and you were you know kind of kicking butt and doing your thing. And and but from your point of view, that was definitely like a previous chapter. So it's interesting to hear you talk about the rituals and the culture and the type of software that you guys were using. And I mean, I'm I'm actually curious to hear like what has persisted and what has changed in in approximately two years. You know, it's one of those things. It's probably like, um, you know, I've got a nine-year-old and a four-year-old and it's it's all at the same time, like almost impossible to remember what life was like without them. You know, it's like, which is kind of how I feel 18 months later <laughs> after this merger is like, well, weren't they always here or wasn't, right. wasn't <laughs> my partner always here? So, um, you know, Daniel Herndon and I, who's the guy that we joined up with, um, have known each other for something like seven or eight years at this point. And we just kind of ran in similar circles in the Indianapolis market. And he was starting his company when I met him. And I was maybe, you know, about that many years into my own company at the time. So he was just getting started. And, um, you know, we, we definitely, um, you know, competed on some projects over the years. And I just really admired the way that he had, um, grown his business and kind of the the level at which they were delivering work now. And in fact, we ran into each other at an awards show and his team was up for an award. And I just looked at it and I thought, man, that's, that's a really great piece. And then I realized it was theirs. And then I thought, you know, that's, that's maybe different than how we would have solved it, but I would have been really proud to have said that we did that work. So maybe this is worth a, worth a conversation. So, you know, a couple of months later, fast forward, we, we each landed two really big projects and we thought, you know what, this is, we could think about this forever or we could just push the chips in and go. So that's what we did. I don't know that that's the way I would recommend anybody else do it. I think it's been all things considered. I think it's gone really smoothly. Um, and you know, you have people who stick with you for the long haul and some people didn't, didn't make it through the entire transition and, um, you know, but so the team has changed quite a bit over the course of 18 months and some of, some of those folks on both sides are still with us. So it's, it's been really cool and interesting and, you know, to, to watch, to watch the team evolve. And, and like you said, or alluded to at least the, you know, the cultural things that stick from, from both teams. So, uh, Redwall was the name of his previous company. And that Redwall is just like an inside joke machine. And it was like just about anything you could say in conversation, they had an inside joke to go with it. So oh, that's you know, just sort of learning each other's codes and learning how to <laughs> like why the joke was even funny. Cause at this point, like the joke doesn't make any sense unless you know the humor behind it. And, um, and I'm sure we had plenty of, of weird stuff on our own. And, you know, as the name of our show kind of implies, I think, we were maybe the group that was more known for our obsessions and, and our super geeky design approach and, you know, kind of a, a painting the inside of the mailbox design culture where like, even if we were losing money on the project, we were going to do it until it was, you know, a hundred point zero percent perfect and yeah, a yeah. little more uh, perfectionist, I suppose. So, so, you know, I don't know if that answers your question at all as you, as you flip the microphone and, make me the interview subject, but yeah, no, well, it's a discussion, isn't it? But, um, that's, believe it or not, that's one thing I've never been through. And I, you know, I'd like to say I've been through the middle a little bit in my career as a freelancer and 
I survived the recession somehow. I got laid off a couple times. So I've seen a lot of different scenarios, but that's one thing I haven't seen is actually being merged and and trying to square that circle. Because, I mean, there's a great metaphor, right, where the Blue Nile and the White Nile in Africa come together and become just the Nile. And you can actually see the water from both sides of the river running side by side. So it doesn't mix. They Even though it's water, you'd think it would mix. But one side is is like very blue and one side is kind of brown. And they they travel side by side. So they're the same river, but they're clearly two different water sources. Mm. Uh, so did you have something like that, like where, you know, Project A would still be handled by the veteran Miles people and then Project B was, you know, the, the formerly Red Wall people? Or did you really purposefully mix people up and say, okay, account manager, work with this designer who you've never worked with before. Like we have to just rip off this bandaid and get everyone together. Well, you know, when I talked about, you know, not, not everybody kind of made it through the transition. I think those early days certainly were more like, uh, you know, it felt a little bit more like West side story. So everybody's kind of staring each other down, but I, you know, in all, (laughs) in all seriousness, everybody got along well, but it still felt a little bit clicky in that the Miles team and the the Redwall team wouldn't always be as integrated as we would have loved. And I don't think it was anything other than they just knew each other better. You know, it was just, these are the people they hung out with at lunch and went to events with after work and, you know, interacted with on social media. And so those are the people they were closest to. So I don't think it was anything more than that really, but to, you know, fast forward 18 months later, the team feels very integrated to me. And I don't, um, you know, we've had so many great designers that have worked for us in the past and great marketing professionals. And, um, I, I just couldn't be prouder of the the team that we have today and how, um, how collaborative it, it truly feels. So to go back in our, you know, design wing, as I often maybe mistakenly call it, um, it's more like the team wing. So our creative director, uh, our lead digital guy, our other two developers, our, our three designers, our writers, they're, they're all sitting literally in the same room kind of side by side. And, um, and it's fun to go back there and see, you know, a designer talking to a developer, to a writer about, Hey, here's this thing that I'm thinking of and what do you think and how does this work? And, and to know that the developer can weigh into design changes early in the project, I think that just, it just makes for a better, better thing in the end. Yeah, totally. And, totally. and I think our work is better in the end because, we literally have our people, you know, they're not like sitting on top of one another, but they're, they're right there next to each other and they can work through these problems together. Yeah. Awesome. And are you still doing the beer and pizza on Friday night? Wasn't that your thing? You had the ritual going? <laughs> we, we did have something like that. So it was, um, I think we called it our beer salon. So we were trying to get a different six pack and hanging out and, you know, unpacking what happened that week. Um, I, I honestly think that's probably a tradition we, we should bring back, uh, going into 2017. Um, but if anything, just our lives have all gotten crazier. Um, my kids are a little bit older, so it's like, you know, I never thought I'd hear myself say this, but I'm like rushing home to, to see my kids every night as opposed to, you know, lingering at the office. And, you know, I was, I was the champion of the 50 to 65 hour week. You know, I was, I was never getting out on time. It was always like there was 10 more things to do, but now having a business partner, I feel like I can just make a more realistic time of my week and get through my, my, my jobs on time. And 
So um, maybe for a variety of reasons, that Friday night thing is not really uh, a, a reason that everybody stays late anymore. But but I loved the tradition of sitting back and just having a chance to kind of reflect on the week. Yeah, no, that was that was cool. I was listening and I was like, man, that sounds like a cool place to work. <laughs> Well, what do you, I know that you are in a super secret location today and we can't yeah. disclose uh, precisely where you are other than to say it's kind of a big deal and you are um, doing some, some contract work or freelance work with these guys on site. So what have you noticed kind of in the different cultures where, where you have been, like if you were going to create your new agency or wave a magic wand and kind of pull the pieces together, what are some of the most recent things that you've seen or experienced that, that you think would be a have to have in, in your own, you know, mega agency. Absolutely. You know, I just had this conversation earlier cause there's another fellow here who's a veteran freelancer and he, he's more of like a retoucher and video guy. So he's a, I, perhaps a little more technical, but he, he's, you know, been through the war just like me. And, um, we we're talking about this, about how you've seen so many different places. You, you kind of have to copy the good and hopefully leave aside the bad. And one thing I think is very important, especially for that small to mid-sized company is that there has to be a number two, right? So you have this character at the top and there has to be someone else who can kind of run the show because it, it's either going to create a bottleneck or worse, if the person's just not there, it's like a bottle cork. It, there's no decision. <laughs> and I mean, it's amazing to, to see that. I have been cork guy, by the way. Ah, uh, yeah. Oh, I didn't want to tag you with that, but um, I, I guess it's one thing if it's nine people, but once you get to like I've seen twice my, with my own eyes, I've seen companies that are about a hundred people, and they essentially have one person in charge, and you know that's no longer the job of a founder or a CEO, and but it gets to a certain size, and you really have to be the executive, and you have to sort of solve million dollar problems, quote unquote, and you have to be six months ahead of everyone else, and and you're working on on the big picture, but it's like at the same time, who can solve the $600 problem, right? Who can sign for a renewal of the copier machine that, you know, that is $500 a month or some, something, some like medium size mm -hmm. expense. Like, I mean, that's a very persnickety example, but, um, that's a long way to answer the question. There has to be someone with you. Like, I don't think I could ever start a firm by myself and just call it like Prescott Inc. You know what I mean? And, um, I don't really want to also because I've sort of discovered my own blind spots, uh, essentially the, the new biz and client acquisition side, um, have been really tough for me. And I, you know, it's tough to admit as well that I think a lot of the conversations about professional design and not just graphics, but web design, architecture, fashion, whatever it is, like you go to these conferences and the people on stage are basically saying some version of, don't you just hate it when all these clients call you all at once and, and you're sitting there in the audience and you're like, uh, <laughs> that never happens. You know what I'm saying? And so I can imagine myself teaming up with someone who really loves the hunt and is essentially a salesperson. Um, and you kind of have to do that now, right? Because if mm -hmm. you want to be a craftsman and if you want to really geek out as I do, and it sounds like you do as well, um, you, you have to concede that certain things you're just not going to be good at. And that sounds really obvious, but that is something I see a lot as well. Um, but another thing, so number one, don't start it by yourself or don't be the bottleneck. And then another thing is that on a, a perhaps a more practical level, like you really got to have these systems in place. You got to have workflows. You got to have these rituals for when a project begins, what happens? Does it get a number? 
Does it get a folder? Does it, you know, do you hang a thing on a wall and then pull it down six months later when you finish? I don't know. Mm -hmm. You make something up. But like those rituals are really important because they show everyone that something has happened, that this matters and there's now a start to something new. And so it's a little bit of a psychological hack, but you'd be su surprised at how many places everything just kind of continuously, slowly oozes forward and you're never quite sure like where the boundaries are, where something begins or ends, or whether it's gone to review with a client or whether it's gone to internal review. And so I, I think to instill a sense of crispness, if that's a word, um, is very important. And part of that I think comes from having someone who can act like the sergeant major and can kind of crack the whip and say like, yo, you didn't save this file correctly. You didn't put it in the right folder. You didn't label it version two. And I mean, those are all negative things, but that's also the mm -hmm. person that you can turn to to keep everything moving. And the, the person that is going to lead those rituals and is going to really hold everyone together when things get tough. Um, so that's an interesting point of view from a studio culture, right? It's like, who's the veteran that's keeping everything moving? Who's that grizzled old sergeant major who's who's not trying to win awards necessarily, who's not trying to, you know, write some kind of PhD thesis on a daily level, but is really just kicking butt um, and teaching. There's a culture of teaching that, that the best companies do well, not just design firms, but, you know, you could see this at a law firm or something where if you come in as an associate lawyer, like some places you're just there to work, but some places they kind of tell you, Hey, this is a long arc and one day you'll be a partner and we'll teach you, you know what I'm saying? And th that I think is a good philosophy that more professions can adopt. Yeah. I think it's, uh, interesting in that, um, you know, one of the big changes for me personally is though I've, I've always been kind of a, a long view guy. Like it's easier for me to see five or 10 years out than it is to know what I'm supposed to do tomorrow or maybe what I'm supposed to do next. Um, you know, as the team has gotten bigger and having a business partner and kind of developing that, that management layer as well. So I feel like I've got people who can, who can help with some of those day-to-day -day things or, you know, somebody who can, um, you know, keep an eye on what's going on from a production standpoint or having creative director to, to watch over the creative product and not feel like I've got a, you know, have my fingerprints all over everything for it to succeed or to make sure it goes out the door all straight. Um, yeah, absolutely. And I guess you get to a certain point and you have to pick it, right? Like, have, did you struggle with that? Like where you said, I can become the chief designer of this company or I can become the, you know, the executive. Like, was it a binary choice or did you kind of waver and eventually figured it out? I wish I had a really great story about how hard this was to decide, but it was it felt like a no brainer to me and that I knew that I had to, you know, lead the company, be that business development guy, be the, the face or the voice or the, the, whatever, the guy who's out making relationships and creating new ones. And, um, that, that I could, you know, I guess something inside my head was like, you know what, you can always come back and make pretty stuff if that's what you want to do, or you can always come back and solve problems if that's what you want to do. But, you know, you, for me, my network was a bunch of designers and creatives. Right. So it was easy for me to look out in my network and go, I want that guy and that guy and this gal, and we're going to do this together. Um, and I knew that they could support the creative side. And what I didn't know was I didn't have a network full of, you know, design business leaders who I could <laughs> hire someone to, to be CEO or COO or whatever. So 
that was just sort of natural for me to, I guess, to take on that role, even though, you know, the, the number one question people ask me is, don't you miss doing the design work? And, but, but I think it's just as cool to look back at the stuff that our, our team is doing and to, to be there. Um, even if I'm not there to present it, you know, to know that we're getting good work through to the client that we're making an impact and that I don't have to be the one making it to still deliver some awesome stuff. Sure. Sure. Absolutely. That's, that's like playing the orchestra, right? You're still proud of the end product, even though you didn't work on it in the same way, you kind of enabled it to come to life. Mm -hmm. Oh, but another thing to, again, I'm still talking about this magic wand here because it's very appealing, uh, eventually to get my hands on such a wand, but (laughs) yeah, the, um, the idea that the modern agency is, is almost required to have some kind of project that isn't pure client work. And, you know, you're doing this with the podcast, but I think I, I can really admire the folks who are now doing it almost under one roof, having like two completely different brands, two business models, you know, every day is different because, oh, we're organizing this conference. Okay, great. Or tomorrow we're doing whatever it is, a, a brand identity. And so if I were setting up from scratch, I would definitely think of how we're going to do that from day one. You know, is this going to, are we going to do a seasonal pop-up shop? Are we going to do a lecture series? Are we going to produce books? Like we have to do something that is for the community and is also a consumer product, like, uh, you know, either media or just like a direct product for sale and something that isn't pure client services. And part of that is economics. It just to suppress the, you know, the, the whimsy of random markets. But, um, I think that's also how you can build cultural context for your firm and for your people. Yeah, absolutely. And I would say, you know, my maybe dual challenges are, I love shiny things. Like I will chase after shiny all day long. And, uh, luckily I have, have a team who is there to remind me like, okay, we can't, we can't do all of it. We can, we can pick a few things, but we can't do all those things. But, um, you know, and then also finding time for it. So you, you end up with this, um, almost portfolio or future portfolio of all these things that, that could be and things that you want to do. And I think maybe even just, um, you know, if I were to give myself some advice going back, I would say, okay, well pick one of them and do one of them as well as you need to, to get it out in the world and see if it falls flat or if it's successful and then, then go do the next thing, but don't try to you know, spin all these plates at the same time. Right. Yeah, that's, of course, that makes sense because especially I'm thinking of from your point of view, if you have an entire person who's drawing a salary, you can't just say, Hey man, go make some posters like, or whatever it is, like make some (laughs) t-shirts. They have to earn that salary, bring the value to the agency. But I mean, imagine eventually, like if they could, maybe those posters could actually earn enough money on the open market to to pay for that position. Uh, you know, that's really interesting. And it's hard. I mean, I've kind of jumped into that as a podcast producer and the whole idea of of having to market yourself, not not as a service provider, but having to market your content, for lack of a better word, uh, really bizarre and something that I guess young designers are more familiar with now because of social media, because of online promotion. Um, but some of us old Nicks, you know, we really just want to crank out like a really beautiful annual report and hopefully someone acknowledges it and gives us more work in the future. Um, so there's a little bit of tension there as well. So Prescott, speaking of side projects, and I think we should dig into your podcast a little bit. So okay, you've been doing this for a handful of years now and, 
you know, I, I know it has grown and evolved and changed a little bit from the beginning. So what do you feel like are kind of the, the chief learnings from where you sit today and uh, how might you have adjusted that strategy for the podcast? If you knew all these things going back to, you know, the early episodes, what, what might you do differently? Oh yeah, absolutely. Well, also speaking of side projects, um, I started this year, 2016, the New York city podcast meetup, and that's an in-person event series. And it's funny because I started it because I was just tired of online groups only. And it's so hard to make connections on Facebook and whatever. So I started this in-person group and it's been really cool to meet new folks in real life, but now I have another thing to do. And man, I like, I really need some help. <laughs> so if anyone is listening in New York, by the way, and you want to get involved at any level, like marketing, event planning, whatever, like please get in touch. Cause I could definitely use the help and you can take all the credit, believe me. <laughs> so anyway, sidebar, um, the busy creator, right? It's almost three years old as we record this midst of planning. Now the 100th episode, which is going to be a live event in Brooklyn in uh, January 2017. And it's, it's been an interesting ride. Yes, that's a milestone. It's just numerically, but it's also like a whole chapter of my life now. I'm like, geez, this thing has been with me a long time. And it's only finally starting to get traction in the wider world. And I haven't done a lot of paid advertising, paid traffic. Um, I honestly haven't done that much outreach because you know, that just never felt natural to me, but also depending on everything else that was going on, uh, it was like, this is really not a good time to start like blasting my message across the media, you know, but in the last six months I have seen traffic increase. And in November I had my first month that was over 10,000 downloads, which is kind of a cool milestone because I actually scaled back my publication schedule to only every other week instead of weekly, uh, which I was doing for for sort of a period of time there. Actually, when I interviewed you the first time, it was on a weekly schedule. Um, so that's been interesting to see how you can actually increase traffic with fewer, better episodes. And some of that's just natural, right? You become a better interviewer, you become a better editor and a better sound producer. Like I got a mic, you know, that sounds a little bit better and you just get more comfortable uh, not only interviewing, but even when you're recording the intros and the outros, uh, which you still kind of weirdly embarrass me, like, you know, and it's funny because the interview is 45 minutes or something and the outro is only 30 seconds, but somehow it would be like more embarrassing to talk to a mic in, in an empty room than it would be to talk to another person. I can absolutely relate to that. Maybe while we're geeking out on podcasts um, and your gear, tell us what, what kind of mic did you get? Like what, what kind of upgrades did you make to the studio this year? Ooh, let's see. Well, I've had my mic for a while, and this is an Audio-Technica. I think it's a 2005, a ATX 2005 USB, something like that. And it has USB and XLR connections. So for a long time, I was using it just with USB. And then I finally got a mixing board, and now I'm using as a uh, XLR. Oh, my goodness. How did I just – I just said it, and yet I forgot it. <laughs> um. So yeah, but I got I got a mixing board. It's a, a Zadie 10 ZEDI, and I forget the manufacturer, Harman and something, I don't know. But <laughs> the reason I bought this particular model was because it's not just a mixing board, it's also a USB interface. And believe it or not, even in 2016, it's really rare to have any kind of audio device that is actually a USB interface. Mm -hmm. So a lot of them will connect they'll connect via USB, but it'll only be two channels. So it'd essentially be one track stereo 
or two tracks mono, which is so weird because even on a podcast, you figure that's two tracks right there. So are you telling me that the only way I can record on separate tracks is if I have one person pan to the left and one person pan to the right? Mm -hmm. Like that's ridiculous because if you're trying to listen to it, it's going to drive you insane to listen to one person on one ear. So it's unbelievable that this is a feature. But I bought this mixer and it has four tracks in, four tracks out on USB. So this means I can record myself and another person on Skype and uh, potentially two more people sort of in the room or whatever uh, on separate tracks. And if you're editing your own show, that is a huge advantage to have them on multiple tracks. Um, so that was really the main thing about about that setup. And I'm still just recording in my bedroom and I don't really have any soundproofing equipment. So I kind of improvise a little bit, right? You draw the curtains. Um, I have like one pillow that I sort of stuff at the end of my desk, like next to the corner of the room, because corners are the worst for reverb. So mm-hmm. I like to I do that. I set it up a little bit. I make sure the radiator is off because I have like a steam heat, you know, an old Brooklyn apartment. But it's still pretty DIY and, and I'm okay with that so far. And um the next step I guess would be probably not the microphone, but to to learn how to do compression better and to really get with some golden ear type people and have them analyze my peak levels and all the really technical stuff, because I think it does matter a little bit. Like if your show can sound better, can sound more consistent, and if it can sound better in a car, for example, um, that stuff does matter. And I think it helps attract listeners in the long run. Yeah, knowing um, all those dials sure look like they're a lot of fun to turn, but I don't have any <laughs> idea where they're supposed to point to. So luckily we have a, an editor who actually knows what she's doing and she's She's a legit sound person, so we always talk about Jen at the end of the show, but shout out to Jen Eds for uh, for all of our great edits. Yeah. Yeah, that's – no, your show sounds great. I'm, I mean, you would be surprised, or maybe not, <laughs> about how bad some shows sound, like sonically. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, there's one I like to listen to, and I, I always give these gals a shout out because the content is really great. It's called Own It, the podcast, and I, I think it's ownitthepodcast.com. And these two, I mean – are they using some kind of 1930s telegram? Like maybe <laughs> it, the sound is so bootleg, <laughs> but I, it's good content and you sort of you get used to the people. But if it was the first time I was hearing the show, I don't know if I could listen to that because there's so much out there and it's crazy. I mean, we, you know, we talk about obsessions, of, but that is one thing I'm definitely obsessed with is new podcasts and listening. And uh, you listen not only as a consumer, but as a producer. So you're listening for multiple things at the same time and, and kind of analyzing people's interview techniques as you're listening to it, uh, which is always interesting. And mm-hmm. uh, sort of like when you go to the movies, you know, you're watching it as a creative person as well. And you're thinking about costume and art direction and, and title sequences and what kind of fonts they're using and all those type of things, which I used to think would make it worse. You know, like I would, I would think for a musician, like how can you even listen to just a, a regular song on the radio because you yeah. know how it's made, you know how simple it is, you know how whatever, how stupid the chords are. And, and, but maybe it gives you a better appreciation of it as, at the same time. I feel like that's kind of what learning about graphic design did for me with um, more hands-on art, like drawing and painting and stuff. So I've been challenging, challenging myself and others, frankly, to, to get back to, to doing that stuff. And, even I, you know, I played in a, in a little rock band. We played a couple just local bars and shows and stuff. 
uh, early in my uh, career as Miles Design as well. But um, the band wasn't Miles Design. It was just about the same time I was starting the company. But, you know, after the band kind of broke up, I lost interest in playing guitar by myself because it was so much different, you know, once you bring all those other pieces together. So it's, uh, yeah, I can, I can definitely get how, you know, learning about those things could make you see them differently. It's kind of like that that scene in the matrix where once you take that, that one pill, <laughs> yeah. you know, you're going to see everything differently and you're kind of, you know, blessed or cursed depending on how you look at it. Absolutely. But you reminded me actually of something that's a recurring theme on the busy creator, which is that everyone now is into this. I mean, I, I shouldn't say sort of diminutively, but it's really cool that everyone's into this DIY mentality where we just want to do all the things and you have creative people who are more empowered than ever they they have access to more things especially in a big city that if you just want to put on a, a concert like just go do it and if you want to record a video and make a short film and do some title sequences like all right just sit down and do it and there's like nothing stopping you and it's really cool to see people experiment sideways and not just do a side project related to their their regular project right if you you work in branding and you come home and like do a brand for your mother it might be interesting. It might be different than your day-to-day -day clients, but it's still kind of your field. But then suddenly, oh, hey, I signed up for woodworking classes and now I'm like building custom furniture. Like that's awesome. You know what I'm saying? Like, are you seeing that as well? Or is it even from some of your own people? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And we've got, um, so for me personally, I guess, um, we moved into a new house a little over a year ago and, you know, kind of the the feature of the home is the kitchen you know, it's kind of one of those where the, the living room, the dining room, the kitchen are all like one big, one big room. And sure. I have done so much more cooking in the last, you know, 12 months plus. And it has just been, it's been a creative outlet. It's been, uh, you know, I feel better. I think I eat better. Um, and I'm at the point now where I don't even like it almost across the board. I don't even like going out to eat because I know I'm going to pay a stupid amount of money, even if it's just you know, quick serve, but I, I know I'm going to pay more than I would want to pay and end up with food that's not nearly as good as what I would make. But it, it has felt like a creative outlet that it's, you know, whether it's following a recipe to the T or just sort of like looking in the fridge and going, hmm, let's see what happens with these things and trying yeah. something out. Like it's it's just been a lot of fun. Yeah, that's totally an aspect that people get into. And there's a lot of foodies in New York, man. There's, I mean, the classic case of people that just like don't have anything in their fridge because they just go to restaurants all the time and they're, you know, they're really in love with food. That's the opposite case from you who've taken up cooking. But a lot of people are into cooking now. And just like woodworking videos, there's a ton of cooking videos on YouTube and folks are, are <laughs> no pun intended, they're just gobbling it up. And um, a friend of mine, Adrian, <laughs> does a, a video series in addition to her day job, which is uh, sort of digital marketing for musicians. So she's, you know, crossing multiple things. She's producing videos, she's doing music, she's doing cooking. And, um, and like, that's so cool. And I, I think the trouble comes, though, is when you, you know, picture like Maslow's hierarchy, when you're really kind of stuck in the bottom, and you're, you're worried about food and shelter and rent and, and really getting to zero sort of thing. Because yeah, it's great that someone else has like the leisure time and the, the mental whatever, like capacity to, to go home and pay attention to something else. But if you're just like drained and exhausted, you, you got to fight for the, the side, not the sidebar, but the main dish. 
And um, I absolutely empathize with folks that are in that struggle as well. Absolutely. So what has been um, something recently for you that has um, maybe lit some fresh sparks for you? Where do you feel like you're spreading your wings a little bit more these days? Oh, that's a good question. Yeah. I, I mean, I ponder a lot, right, about what's next for my freelance career and am I going to change things up and do I even have the option? And um, I just listened to a, a podcast from my friend Matt Inglot called Freelance Transformation. And the guy he was interviewing was talking all about freelancing for agencies, like not doing any direct client work. And I'm like, that's a really interesting approach, you know, because most people think if you're a solo practitioner, you have to you have to get clients. Like, where do your clients come from? Who do you work mm-hmm. with? And it's like, well, what if you said, like, I don't want to work with any clients. I just want to work with agencies so I could see other types of work environments and be a consultant. And I'm almost tempted to do that in 2017, uh, especially if I can manage the lengthier assignments where you go in as more of a consultant. You're not just a guy, right? You've heard that before. It's like, oh, no, we need a guy. Mm-hmm. And like, <laughs> I'm kind of tired of being a guy. Um, <laughs> so the, um, you know, several of the people that we've interviewed on this show are, are kind of in a similar role. And, and I would say most of the ones who are, who at least I perceive to be successful have agents out there who are hitting up those other agencies or maybe even direct to client on occasion. But it seems like those are the, the designers or the illustrators who kind of have, have their thing. So they're either, you know, hand lettering or have a particular style or, um, you know, have just even had maybe a couple of different looks that they do. So people come to them because they're looking for that, you know, that trend or that new thing or that thing that that person is kind of known for. So I'm curious to see how that would work with like somebody who has a more interdisciplinary or Swiss army, you know, toolkit sort of background. If that would be successful. I've wondered about that as well because I, I've talked to some folks on my show who've worked with representation and it, it is more from, as you say, the photographers, illustrators, and uh, the models as well. They've been on that that um, system for a while where somebody gets you a project and helps you project manage and do logistics, but then they also take a fee and that's okay. And I mean, I know some designers do like Von Glitchka does. He, he talks about that. He has an agent. And I'm like, are you kidding me? So you're basically telling me projects just fall from the sky. Like you just open your inbox and like that, that to me is an amazing dream. But at the same time, it really depends on the type of work you do. Cause I know that like, like you said, um, hand lettering, cartooning, those type of things, they often work on such fast turnarounds that it's almost to the point where it's an entirely different discipline. Like you cannot do a brand in a day, but if you want to do editorial cartoons, you will absolutely be called on to turn around an entire project in a day. Um, Same thing with lettering, same thing with like, uh, you know, package design for some of these high end agencies that, that they'll have to do like the, whatever the, the key, the key artwork for the bottle, like tomorrow, you know, for a new business pitch or something. And, I think that's a little ridiculous. So, um, man, how do we pull that off though for like branding and for more communication design where, where it is more of a transformation over time, um, a three month project, not just a three hour project. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I don't know how that would work even. I mean, yeah, I guess you could kind of say, oh yeah, that it could be a, a sort of confederacy where let's say you have four or five designers and then they share 
quote unquote, a new business person. And then that person brings in work. And then it's kind of like, all right, well, this is more your speed and this is more for you. And, you know, cause you, as a solo practitioner, I definitely don't have enough revenue or projects to justify an entire person working for me, but maybe a quarter of a person or a fifth of a person. And if you shared it under one roof, that would get really interesting. So maybe that's a new type of model. Yeah. I'm curious how, um, you know, today you could basically build an, an international <laughs> outsourced team using people from, you know, all of the various websites or even just, uh, people who are hanging their, their shingle out there in Eastern Europe or in, you know, Asia or whatever. And there's, there's so many ways that I think you could skin the cat to build a design business today that, um, I, I think we, we are just seeing the beginnings of how, uh, this distributed workforce thing could come together. Yeah. And I think too, that it's not just one or the other, and maybe that's where the most powerful situations can come to effect. Like imagine if you will, that you get a new project and then you summon everyone to the mothership and say, all right, guys, come out to Indy. We're going to be here for two weeks. We're going to get really dirty. We're going to come up with lots of crazy ideas. We're going to have pizza and then we're going to find the battle plan and then go back to your home office and work on it for three months. You know what I'm saying? Or whatever it is. If it's a website, if it's an identity, I don't know. Where mm -hmm. you have this collaboration, you have this in-person milestones, but then you also have the distributed work on a day-to-day -day level. And if everyone's in the same city, that could even happen on a, on a weekly basis where you say Monday's in the office and the rest of the time is distributed. And that's just a way to, I guess, lower costs. So I don't know. But those hybrid models, I think, are really appealing because the problem is, and again, another thing I've seen firsthand is like when you're forced into a lifestyle that isn't really a natural fit, that's where the, the tension occurs. So it's great to have options, great to work from home or to work remotely, or you have so-and-so that works in three-hour spurts throughout the clock, like somehow doesn't sleep. Um, that's great. But when you're forced into that, that's where, where the trouble comes from. And you see a lot of people who are freelance by default nowadays and it's like, hey, no one really stopped to ask them, like, would you prefer a full-time job with a commute, with an office, and et cetera? And you'd be surprised how many people would say yes. Yeah, one of the big changes, maybe going back to the the Miles Herndon conversation, is that um, with this team today, you know, we have a whopping 16 people now. So we're, you know, kind of double-ish of where we were last time. Yeah. And uh, so one of the biggest changes that we have, though, is that our remote working policy is that we don't have a policy. And what that means is to work with your supervisor to make sure a, that your work is getting done and just figure it out. So, you know, we generally ask people to within 48 hours, give us a heads up if they're planning on working remote or doing some funny time shifting or whatever that day. But it, it just occurred to me. So this is, um, maybe about a year since we implemented the policy <laughs> and it just occurred to me like, Hey, maybe I should be taking advantage of that myself. So I'm trying to do like, right. you know, maybe one remote day a week, uh, where I, you know, I live on the North side of Indianapolis. It's like a 30 some minute commute, perhaps most of the time, maybe if traffic's bad or it's snowing or doing something silly, it's a lot longer, but so I'm just trying to be more, um, more intentional about how I plan the week and doing things like, 
you know, the studio that I'm recording in for this episode is, is one that's like right by my house and it's actually owned by the public library. So I can pop over here and use this on days that I'm, I'm up North. And when I'm downtown, I record in the studio. Yeah. And that's totally like the idea that, um, I don't know if you heard our bonus episode about deep work where Murray and I talked about the book deep work. Mm -hmm. And we were talking about this, how if you were to set aside one day a week, you know, from a conventional job or whatever, and he said, okay, I'm going to work from home on Thursdays. Like, what would you do on that day? Would, would it be the exact same type of hullabaloo and getting interrupted by phone calls and, and so-and-so kind of tapping you on the shoulder, but in, except now he's doing it virtually, you know, via Slack, or <laughs> would you also separate the type of work? And would you say, okay, Thursday is my day where I just go through my inbox and just reply to all the inane stuff. It's like super shallow. And then I take a break. And then when I come back, all I do is, is do concepting and like deep pondering and the kind of abstract stuff that isn't going to end up on the table tomorrow when I return to the office, but it's, you know, it's more back burner, like that type of thing. You got to think, why am I separating myself from home? Am I also separating the work? And, and how does that change? Because think about the opposite case. If you're in the office and the person who you really need is at home just because they decided like Wednesday is their home day, you're just like, oh man, this is, we're still in the mix of this collaborative phase. Like that's, that's a little bit odd. That's the interruption. So there's still some bugs to work out, but it is definitely an inspiring time. And that's just one of the reasons. Yeah, absolutely. love that. So Prescott, before we um, completely wrap up here and we've talked about almost nothing but obsessions for the whole show. So I'm, I'm curious if you've got a fresh one, but is there anything maybe beyond uh, the Star Wars universe and Rogue One that, that you feel like you are most obsessed with right now? Ah, uh, that's a tough one. Yeah. What am I obsessed with? Many things. Uh, woodworking videos on YouTube. Man, there's so many good ones. <laughs> um, check out, yeah, Izzy Swan and April Wilkerson and Matt Cremona. And I think you'll have to Google all these names to find them on YouTube. But I, it's, it's awesome. Uh, the Samurai Woodworker, he's good. And <laughs> So are these because um, you are also into woodworking or are these just some of the guests that you had that coincidentally do woodworking no these are <laughs> these are just like folks that have popular video channels that i watch um, matt has been on my show matt cremona um but i i've actually started taking woodworking classes like i'm an amateur diy type person you know i like to fix up my apartment a little bit and over the last few apartments i've gotten a little more daring while well, actually like rewire things you know and like there should be a light here and I'll just put one together and you <laughs> nice. know, that type of thing. And yeah. And, and, um, fixing doors, like things that are complicated. Like you'd be surprised a door is actually kind of complicated because it's all about this like microscopic measurement. So when it doesn't sit properly or when it sticks or whatever, it's actually non-trivial to fix it. But, um, yeah, so I'm a DIY guy, but I was never into like fine woodworking and I started watching all these videos and I'm like, you know what? I got to get out of the stands and get into the arena. And so I signed up for a class in Brooklyn and it's still under on undergoing ongoing. And so it's like halfway done. And, but we're getting to learn to use all the different types of hand tools. And that may, you know, it seems kind of old school, but it's also kind of relaxing because it's like three hours of doing nothing except like chiseling and planing and just, and everyone in the room is obsessed with their project. You know, you need high concentration 
and high focus. And that's something that, strangely enough, even as a designer, how often in your day are you just completely zoned into something? Um, I don't know. A lot of us, maybe they'll say two hours a day. Some of us, if we're a professional manager, maybe even less than that a day. So I am kind of obsessed with woodworking. Um, <laughs> uh, let's see. What else am I obsessed with? I mean, like every New Yorker, I'm obsessed with real estate and with money and trying to survive and, and I mean, obsessed with politics. God, what? It's, it's ridiculous. Like the politics, I, I nearly drove myself insane this fall. And I, I kind of like punted on everything, especially on Facebook. Like I uninstalled Facebook from my phone and my tablet died. So essentially the same, <laughs> the same end. And, and I've had a CSS trick on my browser. So I have uh, the CSS hides the Facebook newsfeed. So there's just this huge <laughs> cavity in the middle of the page. And like, I he, can't hear you. Yeah. No, it's great because I go there once a day to basically look at the notifications. And most of the notifications are for events. And if there's an event I want to go to, I put it in my calendar and that's the end of that. So I, I have essentially quit Facebook even in the last like four weeks. And it's been pretty awesome. So I'm a, you know, I'm still obsessed with Twitter though. That's one thing. And I mean, I am definitely obsessed with design and like, I, I want to do so many things in the neck, in the new year. And that's really the challenge is like, I have to remain positive in my obsessions and not get, um, insular and not get grumpy and not get sort of introverted. Um, but you know, which will be a challenge as well. Well, maybe as we realize we've been doing, uh, about, uh, you know, a conversation about once a year for the last three years, maybe we should make this a, a December recording slash January airing tradition. But so if that's the case and you go back to listen to all three of them next December before we talk again, what's, what's the thing that you think you'll find yourself doing in 2017 or what's, what's maybe a big goal for you that you want to, you want to um, challenge yourself to do? Absolutely. Well, I think one thing I'm, I'm already starting, but it's something I really want to open up completely is doing in-person events and, and not just the meetup group, but doing things for the busy creator, doing like mastermind retreats and consulting and doing workshops and kind of hitting the road, you know, and I don't know if I'm illustrious enough to do it yet. I haven't been invited to speak at how, but the DIY version of that is definitely available. Um, and that's something I think is, is really powerful because I can foresee a, a future for myself, maybe not in a year, but let's find out, but I can foresee a future where I kind of don't do client work. You know, I either do consulting and workshops for peers, or I'm teaming up with an agency or another group of designers for kind of a long-term project. But the idea of being a, a one person practitioner it's kind of gruesome the way I've been exposed to it. So I actually wouldn't mind graduating from that. But the question is, you know, what are the intermediate steps? Cause no one's knocking down my door to make that happen just instantaneously. Excellent. Well, I think that's a, that's a good challenge for yourself. Um, maybe to get something out there in front of you to figure out how to get there, or maybe to figure out like, what's the, what's the first baby step that you can take that kind of sets the stage for you to be able to do that kind of work. Yeah, totally. And it's one of these things, one of these very annoying catch 22s where it's like, 
if you approach, you know, a university or a conference or whatever, and you say, Hey, I want to give this talk. The first question they ask you is where have you given talks before? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, my podcast, and I've done a few, but I mean, some people get a lot of experience very early because they get some notoriety and then they get invited. And if you are invited and then you have now video evidence, you have the, you know, it's just like being in the movies or whatever, mm-hmm. but, um, yeah, you have to start with this, you know, think about this. Like if you're trying to be in the movies and by the way, I just saw the movie La La Land, which is a movie about the movies, you know what I'm saying? So <laughs> this is like right up the alley that, um, the only way to get credits is to kind of put on your own play or be in your own film. And that's essentially what I'm doing. And I, I have actually been in talks with someone who is a, a professional group and, I want to come and do a talk or a workshop in the spring or in, in the winter. And we're working on that as well. So hopefully that'll be, and I kind of told them, I was like, yo, I'll come out there. If you can like help me get there and take some pictures, like this is not a payday, you know, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not Jim Rome. I'm not trying to Tony Robbins, like trying to make eight figures in one hour of speaking, like forget that. But like, how can we make this happen just in general? Um, so, you know, we'll see. All right. Well, we'll consider that officially in the time capsule. And, uh, as this episode airs in 2017, looking forward to hearing how that comes to fruition. Yeah. And we can see if my obsessions have consumed me. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Just a, a flaming ball of obsessions. Um, so Prescott, before we let you go, fill in our listeners, uh, if they haven't already tracked you down on the interwebs, uh, where they can find you and your show. Yeah, man, totally. So busycreator.com is the website. And depending on when this airs, there may be 100 episodes available for your listening and some bonus episodes. Beautiful. So absolutely check out those, those catalog, check out the whole thing. And I mean, there's so many cool people like that's, sorry to sidetrack again, like that's been the number one thing about doing this podcast is I have connected with so many interesting, amazing people who I am totally jealous of and who I want to be like surrounded by every day and to hear their story and to hear them drop some knowledge. Like I'm in awe of them as well. So give a listen. If you have a moment, um, depending on when you're listening to this, there, there may be a hundred episodes. There may even be a new website if it's a little later in the spring. Um, so check out busycreator.com and then get in touch as well. Very nice. Well, Prescott, I appreciate you uh, taking time to chat once again, and thank you for being obsessed with design. Okay, guys, that is episode number 51 in the books. For all of today's show notes, head over to obsessedshow.com, and please visit iTunes to subscribe and give us a rating and review. Want to help other people to find the show? And we love how many new listeners we are bringing into this show. So thank you so much for helping spread the word. Be sure and uh, tweet out at Obsessed Show or at Josh Miles and let us know what you think of today's show and who you think we should interview next. Our show is always edited by Gen Eds at the Brassy Broadcast Company. Visit BrassyBroad.com. And our intro music is Matchbox Girl by Cassie Joe. We have got some fantastic shows coming up for the rest of this year. So be sure to stay tuned and thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. 